This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Uh, I'm Lisa Muscatine. I'm one of the co-owners of Politics and Prose. My husband, Brad Graham, is fixing the thermostat. Um, but he does other things, I promise, around here, uh, co-owner of the store. Uh, and on behalf of our staff, we, we welcome all of you to, um, to Politics and Prose and to tonight's event, which I think many of you know is part of an ongoing series uh, that we've sponsored that is devoted to exploring race in America. And Clearly, there's no more important uh, day of the year for this event than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. Um, it's certainly one, one of many, many ways we can pay tribute to the values and, and aspirations and inspiration of Dr. King. And just a word about how uh, this Race in America series came to be. Um, the wonderful April Ryan. Um, <laughs> really deserves, she deserves the credit. Uh, she had been at our store uh, for an author event after the publication of her first book, which I hope you all have read, The Presidency in Black and White, um, which is a fabulous book, and it recounts her experiences covering four successive presidents. Now she's got a fifth. Anyway, um, uh, as the Washington Bureau Chief for American Urban Radio. And we got to talking about what a bookstore could do to help provide a platform for broader community-based discussions. And April suggested a panel about race in America, not just one, but um, a series that would continue to evolve as events unfolded in the public sphere. Um, and this is the seventh one, the seventh discussion we've had since our first panel sat down in 2015. So thank you, April, for spearheading the entire thing and being such an, an, an integral part of it. Um, I should also note uh, that during this time, she's also continued to cover the White House and Washington politics and a certain president, um, and has written two more books, At Mama's Knee and Under Fire, reporting from the front lines of the Trump presidency. <laughs> Joining April tonight is an A-plus all-star panel, each of them an influential voice on issues of the day, and each also an author in his or her own right. Donna Brazil is, is not only one of the most prominent African-American women to help lead the Democratic Party over the last 30 years, She's one of the most important political strategists in the party and the nation, period. Um, she has worked I'll take on, it. On, a, on she's worked on a Democratic presidential campaign every cycle since 1984, including as the chair of Vice President Al Gore's campaign in 2000. She served as interim chair of the Democratic National Committee. She's a frequent commentator on network and cable television. Today, she's busy working on voting rights and also teaching at Georgetown. And I venture to say that she is, I could be wrong, but I think she is the only one of our panelists who has appeared on House of Cards. <laughs> Right? And the good wife and being Mary Jane. Oh my God, okay, so who knew? Okay, so she's, you know, she's an actress on the side. Uh, and I would of course be remiss not to mention that she also writes books. Cooking with Grease during the pot American politics was her first. Hacks, which I think you know what that was about from the title, in case you haven't read it. Uh, and then most recently, a really great book. Um, it's actually on my staff pick favorite uh, shelf for colored girls who've considered politics, which came out last year. And I urge you all to come and hear Donna and her uh, three co-authors uh, of that book come and talk about it right here at Politics and Prose on Friday, January 25th yes. at 7 p.m. So hope to see some of you back for that. 
Um, moving on, we are also delighted that Jason Riley, who is right is to my right, is back with us as a panelist, having participated in our last Race in America discussion. Jason is a member of the editorial board at the Wall Street Journal, a position he has held for almost 15 years, having served at the paper since 1994, first as a copy reader, then a copy editor, then a section editor, and senior editorial page writer. His commentary focuses on politics, economics, education, immigration, and race. In, his, in addition to his day job at the Journal, he's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a frequent face on Fox News and C-SPAN, and the author of three books, Let Them In, The Case for Open Borders. Second book was How Liberals Make It Harder for Blacks to Succeed, and his latest book published a couple years ago, False Black Power. Last and certainly not least is Wes Lowry, a national correspondent for The Washington Post who covers law enforcement, justice, and the intersection of those two areas with policy and politics. Wes was a lead reporter on the newspaper's Fatal Force team that gathered data on nearly 1,000 police shootings in the United States in 2015, a reporting effort that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2016. Wes is also, to our great delight... Um, a familiar pay, pay face here at Politics and Prose, having generously served as an interviewer and moderator for a number of our B PNP book events. He's also appeared as, at the store as an author of his own book, again, I hope you've read it, 2016 book entitled They Can't Kill Us, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. Tonight marks the third time that Wes has been a panelist for our Race in America series. As always, we are delighted to have him. And what an incredibly exceptional and wise group we have with us. It's going to be a great discussion. And April, is all yours. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, everyone, good evening. I am so pleased to be here yet again for this, I guess Lissa said, seventh in our series. How many of you have been here since the beginning? All right, yes, that's right. I've seen some familiar faces. Thank you for coming. And for all of, the, all of you who are new to this, sit back, take a breath. <laughs> take a breath, because you're going to have to breathe through this sometimes. But, you know, I just thank, first of all, Brad and Lissa. And Brad, come on out. Come on out. I want to thank the, 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 yes, Brad and Lissa, who are the owners of this magnificent bookstore, who had the foresight to understand that there is a conversation that wasn't going on. And the place to have it is in a bookstore, where we read about these dynamic people who have changed our world. And today... Today, this day, January 15th, the 90th birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the 90th birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we are here for times such as this. I think about today. I think about today. What happened in the house today? What happened in the house? Steve King. The house condemned. Steve King's racist comments. 2019, on Dr. King's birthday, 51 years after his death, if you took a sepia tone picture, you think you're back in 1950, 1960, 1940 even. Think about this moment in time today. We're still dealing with issues of voting rights. Voting rights. We just had a midterm in November, and that's the question that I was asking when I was told to sit down. Voter suppression. Voter suppression is real. Let's just name a couple of states, Florida, Georgia, Texas, North, North Dakota, Dakota, North Dakota, North Dakota. North yeah. 
today in 2019, we're still dealing with this issue on Dr. King's birthday. Issues of poverty remain. This is something that Dr. King worked on with Bobby Kennedy. If both of those two giants had lived, if they had lived, it would have been an issue about poverty for all, trying to lift up the least of these. And then now with this government shutdown, not expected to end, there's expected to be an increase in poverty today on Dr. King's birthday in 2019. And we also have to think about this. Dr. King fought for first-class citizenship for all in this country, where all were once welcome. Think about the wall. And we're definitely going to talk to Jason Riley about open borders. We're definitely going to talk to you. That's going to be part of our conversation. But I want you to think about these and other issues today. This is an important conversation to have. And before we start, I want to put down some ground rules. This is going to be civil. This is going to be a civil conversation. And, and this is a room that Dr. King welcomed and wanted, a multicultural inclusive room. The dream has been fulfilled in some aspects, and in other ways we've regressed. But without further ado, you can hear me talk anytime, all day on CNN and on American Urban Radio Networks. I'm turning to my girlfriend, Donna, Donna Brazil over here. Donna, Dr. King has some books that are sitting back there in some of the stacks. A Testament of Hope. Yes. Hmm. Why We Can't Wait. And where do we go from here? In this moment in time, after the Obama era, we're now in the Trump era. Is there hope? And where do we go from here? Thank you, April. And I want to thank my esteemed colleagues for allowing me to be part of this. Maybe I can get uh, invited back next year. You will. I appreciate that. <laughs> Just accept. <laughs> thank you. Well, first of all, you mentioned that today, um, as we honor Dr. King on his actual birthday, not the holiday that we created, and I'm so grateful to so many of you in this room, especially D.C. residents who year after year, uh, when I was organizing those marches, uh, you all came out, even in some extreme weather, to protest and sign petitions to designate the 3rd January in honor of Martin Luther King. So I want to thank you all, most of all, uh, for standing with us, standing by us, and helping to create a national holiday in his honor. We're going to celebrate, I believe, the 36th uh, birthday uh, celebration this year uh, for the weekend. As we think about this moment, April, the shutdown and where Dr. King would have stood today, had he lived, he would have said, my God, my God, all of those men and women in poverty are being denied their food stamps because that is about to run out. All of those men and women, especially seniors, who are about to face eviction because HUD is not funded. When you think about the hardship, it's, it's not only with federal employees and federal contractors, and I know we know federal contractors and employees because we live in, in this area, but think about the hardship uh, that is going on now with our farmers. Um, with our Coast Guard. This is an extreme hardship. And I would hope that we would use this holiday weekend to do something that we might have not done two months ago, or even two weeks ago, and that is look in our pantry, 
and there are boxes of Jiffy, and there are some canned goods that you know you're not going to eat and devour, give it to the Capital Area Food Bank so that they can continue to provide resources to those who are having to make some tough decisions. Or food bank in your area. In your area, for those, for those of you who are watching. Yeah. My favorite book of Dr. King, and this is where I hope we should we should go as a nation. I re- I read Dr. King. I read him. I I was a little girl, eight years old, when he was murdered. I'll never forget that day as long as I live. That inspired me to get involved in politics. I told my mom I wanted to be a little civil rights worker down in Louisiana, and she told me I was too young. But still, I got out and started doing voter registration campaigns at the age of nine. My first campaign was for a playground. You can still see I'm playing. Uh, <laughs> And now I play for bigger stakes. But my, my favorite book of Dr. King, because it's been the hardest book for someone like myself who's engaged in politics, is Strength of Love. Because he talks in that book about what would Jesus do and how Jesus would love his enemy. I'll never forget when I first read that book, it was during the Ronald Reagan era. And I'm like, how can I believe? I, can, I can't love these people. They hate me. Uh, but that is essentially what we are called to do now. We have to find a way to embrace each other, embrace our differences, to lift each other up, to return to a season of hope. Dr. King would still be excited about the new Congress. He would be excited to see five African-Americans leading major committees on Capitol Hill. Dr. King would celebrate 28 subcommittee chairs. He would celebrate the diversity and Dr. King would remind us that weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come within the morning, but we have to remain faithful. We have to remain faithful to the ideals of Dr. King, the vision of Dr. King, and remind ourselves, not just this weekend, but every week of our lives, where he was trying to take us as a country on that night before that assassin bullet took him away. He said, I may not get there with you, but we as a people, and he was speaking to all of us, not just black people, but we as a people <laughs> will get to that promised land. We're, we're on that mountaintop, and we can go either way. We can go back to that wretched past, or we can go forward together. I believe we should go forward together. Mm, thank you, Donna. And before I go to Wes, I want to make this clear. This is not just a panel that's going to talk. We're going to come up with solutions and we're going to go to the audience as well to help us figure some things out and and just to get your feedback. And we want questions, not uh, filibustering with comments. OK, no preaching, no preaching tonight. That's for Sunday or Saturday. But but Wes, I want to go to you. You've done some great and important work um, and, and you were recognized in 2016 for your work, especially when it comes to police involved shootings. Um, or police-involved abuses. What's happening with with that? Because we know that the Washington Post was keeping count. And we don't hear about it as much anymore, but it doesn't mean that it's not happening. It's indeed still happening. Mm -hmm. Has the climate or the new politics of Washington changed the mindset of America to to really focus in on those shootings and and, and abuses? Sure. Well, you know, I, I do think that, and I, and I appreciate you referencing that work that my colleagues and I did at the Post um, and continue to do. Um, you know, that work began after the fatal police shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson and the death of Eric Gardner in New York and then the death of Tamir Rice in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. And we began looking and 
and researching. And at the core of much of the debate around policing and race at the time was this question of uh, fatal officer-involved shootings and how often they were happening. You had folks who would take into the streets who were saying this was an epidemic and that was happening every day unarmed black men were being gunned down. And you had uh, police unions uh, and some officers and their supporters saying this almost never happens. What are you guys talking about? And so as journalists, we began trying to probe this question. How frequently are these shootings happening? Who are the victims? What are the circumstances behind them? And what we were frankly genuinely surprised to find was that, you know, in a country in a time when we keep statistics on all types of things, you know, exactly how many people have gone and seen a, a certain movie last weekend and how many of them got popcorn, the government didn't have any accurate tracking of how often fatal police shootings were happening, um, that this was something that was being tracked only at the local level and that police departments in many cases didn't have to provide any information about how often this was happening. So here we were having this big national conversation around an issue and that conversation was happening absent very crucial facts. Uh, one thing that's true, having covered this for years, the specific issue for years, is that everyone wants to live in a world where the police kill as few people as possible. The police first and foremost of that. Now, they would argue that there's nothing more traumatic for an officer than to be involved in one of these, these circumstances. But how can we create such a world if we don't even know how often these things are happening, much less what are the, uh, what are the circumstances leading to them? And so we began an effort at the time in 2015 to the extent possible to track every fatal police shooting without any subjective uh, decision-making if this was a good shooting or a bad shooting or if it was justified or unjustified, but just literally trying to build a roster how often this was happening and figuring out who the who the victims were. Um, we, we've now done the, this project. We're now in our fifth year of, of, of tracking. Um, at the time, um, in 2016, then FBI Director James Comey uh, stated that it was embarrassing that we at the Washington Post knew more about this than him and the federal government. Um, and they had, and Loretta Lynch, the former Attorney General, had announced plans to begin having the Department of Justice track this information themselves. Now, when the current administration came into power in early 2017, um, the former Attorney General Jeff Sessions largely abandoned the plans to begin tracking this information. Um, the former Attorney General had been on record talking about how he didn't think local police departments should be forced to provide this information uh, to the federal government. Um, but earlier this year, or I guess now last year, uh, the FBI came in and said they would begin doing some of this. So I'm going to stop you right there. Do you give me the stats? Can you give sure. us some of the stats in, as, as the, the, attorney, the then attorney general said he didn't want the information? Sure. So, so what we know based on the information we, uh, we track is that you have about a thousand fatal, poli fatal police shootings every year. Now, again, these are just shootings involving guns. So this is not involving tasers or chokings or other types of deaths in custody, right? Um, about, so you have about a thousand uh, fatal police shootings each year. The vast majority of those shootings are of people who are somehow armed, according to the police account of what happened. Um, in many, and most of those cases, in fact, are of armed white men. The majority of people killed by the police are white men. Uh, now, when you begin correct, or when you begin adjusting the data uh, to look at the different uh, population totals, uh, you do see that black Americans are more likely to be the victims involved in a fatal shooting. And then when you adjust it for armed and unarmed, uh, black Americans who make up about 12% of the population account for 24% of the fatal shooting victims and 40% of the unarmed shooting victims, right? And so you do begin to start seeing uh, what many people would argue is a, is a statistical racial disparity. Now, there are debates about um, some of the, the factors involved there, but what we saw was that um, 
there there was in fact a disproportionate rate at which black Americans were being killed in these shootings. Uh, at the time, the federal government did keep some data about how often shootings happened. And according to the FBI numbers, there had never been a year where there were more than 463 shootings in a year. We've measured now four years in a row nearly 1,000 shootings. And so fatal police shootings were happening more than twice as often as the government had led the American people to believe. Again, that was because of shoddy record keeping as opposed to deliberate uh, you know, misleading. Wow. And we know one person um, in 2014, Eric Garner, who cried out 11 times, I can't breathe. In 2019, the family is just starting to possibly see justice. Um, and he was unarmed. He broke up a fight. He wasn't selling Lucy's, according to his mother. He broke up a fight and police charged in. And they're just starting the internal process for the officer who did that. So that goes to some of what you're talking about. Thank you. And now I want to go to Jason Riley. Jason, uh, you're an anomaly on that Fox News set. <laughs> it's the truth. Um, <laughs> You are calling for open borders, particularly when this president and many Republicans are supporting a call for this $5.7 billion wall on the southern border. What say you? Well, um, and, and is it a racial issue or is it just about protecting the borders? I think it's both, uh, April. For some people it is a racial issue. Uh, other people are worried about um, uh, safety in their communities. Um, other people are, are worried about just order on the border in general. Um, so I, I think you can't paint with too broad a brush. It's a very, very complicated issue. Some people are worried about uh, immigrants coming and taking jobs, um, overcrowding schools, um, uh, taxing uh, healthcare services and emergency rooms and so forth. Um, so no, I don't think that that everyone who um, uh, supports more border security is necessarily uh, has some sort of racial animus going on. Although some do, some clearly do. Uh, the uh, yes, Fox News has generally uh, been more anti-immigrant, uh, at least among most of its uh, more popular hosts, but. Um, uh, the Wall Street Journal, where I worked uh, for more than 20 years, has long been in favor of um, uh, more immigration, more generous immigration policies. Uh, so I started writing about immigration for the Journal um, back in the early 2000s, actually. And um, uh, I was writing editorials for them and making the argument, mostly the economic argument for um, for immigrants and, and what they bring to the country in terms of... Uh, uh, skill and 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 just uh, 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 capitalism, uh, entrepreneurship, and so forth, um, both at the low end and at the high end, and um, and I don't think the 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 data really bears out uh, the worst fears about immigrants um, that that we get. Um, the president, uh, the president campaigned obviously on on illegal immigration, and there's very little. Um, disagreement among most Americans on wanting to reduce illegal immigration. The real debate is over how to do that. Um, but I don't know a lot of people who want people in the country illegally. Um, uh, but the president's real agenda has been to reduce legal immigration, not just illegal immigration. We were talking about the, the shutdown uh, earlier. And um, last year, the president rejected a deal 
that would have provided some multiple of wall funding that he's being offered now. Uh, $25 billion. $25 billion. Uh, and in, in exchange for the Democrats wanted something done about the Dreamers, about the people brought here illegally as children. Um, that was going to be the deal. Border security funding for legalization for the Dreamers. Uh, he rejected that deal. Why? Because he wanted reductions in legal immigration included in the deal. He wanted uh, the elimination of the diversity visa lottery. He wanted less uh, family reunification, family migration, so-called chain migration. He wanted less of that. Those were all legal forms of immigration. He wanted a net reduction in legal immigration. He has long supported legislation that's been proposed in the Senate uh, by two uh, restrictionist Republicans. Uh, Tom Cotton of uh, Arkansas is one of them. And uh, that bill would call for uh, reducing legal immigration to the U.S. by around half over a 10-year period. The president has vocally supported this bill. So when he goes out there and talks about, oh, I like legal immigrants, I just don't want illegal immigrants, um, I think he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Um, I also think the fears about job-stealing immigrants are way overblown. Um, uh, and just look at the situation we have right now. Um, we have officially 10 or 12 uh, million people in the country illegally. Uh, and if you're anti-immigrant, you never trust those official numbers. It's, it's, oh, it's double that. It's triple that. Okay, let's say it's triple that. What is the unemployment rate in this country right now? I mean, if they're stealing jobs, how can we have 30 million people here illegally and unemployment below 4%? That's true. It, 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 it doesn't square. Um, and, and if you track it over, there have been economists that have looked at immigration over the course of the entire 20th century. And, and higher levels of immigration correlate with lower unemployment rates in this country, traditionally. Uh, so I, I, I think those fears have been overblown, but for Republicans, um, this is an issue that they believe it gets, it gets their base to the polls. Um, it plays very well with their base. And I think Democrats also like to talk about this because it allows them to paint their political opponents as, 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 as racist in some sense. So both sides, I think, have uh, contributed to this impasse over illegal immigration. Uh, I think part of them, uh, part of uh, the mindset on, on both sides is that um, uh, they like this as a political issue. Uh, it works. They both think it works to their advantage. Well, I have two things on the issue of immigration. One, um, immigration and, and the broken immigration system is just not about the southern border. We have a lot of people who come from all parts of the world who come here. They fly in, they get here, whatever, and they overstay their visas. That is a large contingent of this broken immigration system that you're not hearing about right now. And then, too, um, uh, Jason, you can also chime in on this really fast. There's an economic opponent, you're exactly right. And if indeed there is a southern border uh, wall that is built and blocks immigrants from Mexico or from those other, other countries, um, the south to the south of us, if it stops them from coming, it will indeed cause the price of everything to go up because many of those immigrants are low wage workers, they're agrarians, they're 
working in landscaping. They're working in a lot of fields. And we're hearing that there's a trickle effect. I've heard from one of the largest um, companies in this nation, the CEO of that company, the international CEO, who says the price of everything will go up if that southern border wall is put into effect. Is that true? Um, I don't I don't think the wall is a particularly effective way at, at reducing illegal immigration. What's drawing people here are the jobs. It's the economy. And so long as we have a growing economy, they're going to find a way to come. And the wall is ineffective for another number of reasons. It's not that the wall has no deterrent effect. A 30-foot wall has a deterrent effect. Um, although now, is it can, a wall you, with a you, spike? Is it a wall? You, it, you know, it, it is has, it a beating no, no, wall? We know, we know this because back in the 90s, under the Clinton administration, we put up physical barriers in popular corridors in San Diego, in El Paso, but in not Arizona. But 2,000 mile stretch. And, and it reduced traffic at those places. But between the mid 90s and the mid 2000s, illegal immigration overall in this country tripled. So it stopped immigration in some parts, illegal immigration in some parts, but it didn't stop it overall. We had a growing economy and people were finding other ways to come. Also, as you mentioned, a lot of the problem today, most of the problem today, is people who come legally and simply never leave. Mm-hmm. A wall is not going to address that problem. And, and so I, I think the wall uh, is going to be ineffective for a number of reasons. Um, in the long run, in the long run, that is. But yes, there are uh, economic consequences. Um, uh, you 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 do reduce things like the the circular migration you were you were um, describing, where where people would come for the growing season and then go back home afterwards and come back. Uh, what increasing what increasing border security does, in some sense, is stop that. They come, they don't go back because getting back into the country is too difficult. But you can't uh, pick cotton or strawberries year-round. So once the growing season is over, they migrate into other fields. Our growers then need a new set of workers for the next harvest coming up. And again, it becomes more of a magnet from south of the border again. So so yes, you do, you do disrupt uh, certain industries more so than other industries. But I do think the overall, the, the, the overall solution here in the long run is to pr- provide more legal ways for people to come. Um, that that to me, I mean, illegal immigration is 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 too many immigrants chasing too few visas. It's a supply and demand problem. If you want to reduce the number of people coming illegally, give them more legal ways to come into the country. I think that ultimately uh, is the solution to the problem. But April, there's also a difference between immigration and migration, hmm. and people confuse the two. When you see people running from violence, from famine, from war, uh, not just in our hemisphere, but over in and uh, in, in Europe, they're running. They're running from danger, asylum, uh, seeking and, asylum, seeking asylum, and and politicians. And I'm not gonna. And I can name names. I can even give you. Give details. me some receipts. Come on uh, now, Donna. <laughs> But politicians throughout Europe, I mean, you see the nationalist movement in every European country now, the two major political parties now are facing ultra, alt-right parties that are gaining in prominence using migration, the migration crisis. And, and, And we're doing the same thing in this country from the right. We're using the immigration crisis to to basically come up with a false narrative to say that they, they are coming to take something from you. 
you hardworking Americans. And when President Trump, and yes, I'll, I'll call him President Trump, um, and when he leaves, I'll say former President Trump. Um, <laughs> President Trump started off his uh, Oval Office speech by saying, basically, he brought up black people. You saw that? And the NAACP was very upset about that. Absolutely. Because he's trying to create this false narrative that they're t trying to take our jobs, that they're here to take things from us. The, but the Mexican president, uh, the former Mexican president, Vicente Fox, said the same thing. Remember, during the Bush years, Vicente Fox said something along the lines, uh, Mexicans take the jobs that black people don't want, and the nation was up in arms. How dare he? How dare he? And now they're saying it, and there's no big you know, no, no outcry in 2019. All I'm saying is that this this crisis is being exploited. We have a we have a trillion dollar we have trillions of dollars uh, in terms of our, our national GDP. We know what our federal budget is over four trillion dollars. If there was a way to come up with a solution, the Democrats have offered several different ways. But this is a political issue that, for whatever reason, the president is exploiting. So I, I would hope that we would find a solution because we're hurting people now. We're hurting families. We're hurting communities. And we need to come up with a solution. And, and the data does not support um, this idea that, that, uh, that uh, Hispanic immigrants are displacing black workers no. or, or displacing Say any, any Say workers. Say it. The, 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 the data does not support uh, this job-stealing narrative. There are some economists who will tell you there's downward pressure on some wages among some workers, particularly American workers without a high school degree. Low-skill Hispanic workers put downward pressure on Americans without a high school degree, a disproportionate number of whom are black. Um, but there's no evidence that they are displacing them in the workforce. It's just it's just not there. But there is a political um, movement out there, and there, 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 there are political reasons for people to push this sort of black versus Hispanic narrative out there um, and, and, and rile things up. The data, the data simply don't support that. The, the immigrants that are coming um, uh, tend to be, they're, they're competing for different jobs. Immigrants who come here typically compete with one another for jobs, not with the native workforce. They typically have higher levels of, of education and skills or lower levels of education and skills than the average American here. So they're not competing uh, with natives. They're competing more, more, more so with one another. There is some overlap, uh, but, not, but not a whole lot. So, Wes, we are all walled off. You know, blacks are walled off. Whites are now being walled off. Our Latino brothers and sisters are walled off. And other races feel walled off. Our Native American brothers and sisters are walled off. I mean, there's such a great divide in 2019. And, you know, we talk about, oh, let's celebrate Dr. King. And what would King do at this moment? What does your reporting bear as it relates to this divide? And, and how do we overcome this? How do we move past this in 2019? Because the voices, those with the, the biggest thumbs on Twitter and the biggest megaphone get the response. I think it's a I think it's a good question it about who in this moment at a time at a time when I'm spilling my water on the stage at a, at a time when we are undergoing as a nation massive so, social and demographic change who are we and how do we interact and relate uh, to one another and you know I, I do think that that and, and, I, and also what is the 
what is the message we're sending to the world about who we are? Um, as I was as I was listening to the conversation about immigration, and as we've watched uh, the last few years play out, um, and we've seen the way that groups of asylum seekers have been demagogued or or villainized, as we've seen the way that families and children who've arrived at our southern border uh, seeking refuge have been treated. Uh, be, beyond the specifics of the the policy debate, there I think there's a secondary question about who we are as a nation, and when someone shows up, how we treat them. What no matter matter where we, we fall on the policy, uh, you know, the, that should we be building uh, you know, what the administration would call tent cities, but I think most honest brokers would call prison camps for children who are showing up at our borders, right? Um, and, and I think we have to have a, a debate with ourselves about who we are and what we want in these moments. But this comes at a time, you know, I think very often about the book by uh, Bill Bishop, uh, The Big Sort, came out now and, and originally, I think in what, 2000, um, but has been re-released several times about how in this moment um, in history, we now have an ability to self-segregate ourselves, not only along racial or ethnic lines, but also even along political lines about mm. how the places we live um, and the spaces we exist in uh, are much less likely to be politically and socially diverse than they might have been historically and how that makes it easier for us to villainize one another and demonize one another and therefore makes it more difficult for us uh, to take collaborative steps forward no matter the issue or no matter what the thing is. And I think so I think that at a time when we are seeing big demographic shift and, and also when we're seeing infrastructural changes you know we're seeing the revitalization of many American cities uh, if you've been to doubt if you've been here gentrification. in the, certainly. Right, but it's not. But it's not just gentrification. It's gentrification. It's it, displacement. Yeah. It's. But it also it is. I mean, down, downtown Detroit today isn't gentrified. It, it's redeveloped. Right. There was no one there to be displaced by the time they redeveloped it. Some of those communities, are, but that gentrification issue is a huge issue. Certainly, in yes. many communities. Look at look at Washington D.C., yes. Anacostia, mm -hmm. Baltimore. I mean, you know, it's it's happening, and there's a big issue. Of course, the poor, the poor pockets are in those communities, and when they make it beautiful mm -hmm. and bring certain stores. I'm not going to say names, but <laughs> yeah. bring those certain stores in, they can't afford to go back. So that is an issue. Of course. Whole Foods. I'm not, I didn't yeah. say that. <laughs> See, you know, I didn't say that. <laughs> that was Dawn. I did not say that. <laughs> uh, I, spent, I spent 20 years on the hill. <laughs> could barely find a Safeway or Giant, and now there's a Whole Food and a Trader Joe's. But well, aren't you thankful for it now? <laughs> yeah. oh. There's not a food desert. <laughs> Michelle Obama was talking about that. There's not a food desert. So, okay, but we, as we make progress, sometimes it hurts people. Well, well certainly, but, 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 that's, but I think that's something we have to look at because the, many of the folks who are being displaced out of these cities aren't, aren't even staying in the cities themselves. What we end up creating as, as the cities turn over this way is we end up creating, in many cases, low-income black suburbs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that which are now divorced from the resources that a city might have. In fact, it's, that it's appreciatively more difficult to be a low-income black resident of in a suburban community than it might be in a city. Why? Because there's no bus line in Ferguson, Missouri, right? Like, and, and so what we think about as here in the district, a Shaw or a Columbia Heights changes, and that person is pushed perhaps into a more suburban community somewhere in Prince George's County or over the river. How, how is the life of that low-income worker now Increasingly more difficult than it might have been, not that they're making less money, not that they, but but because of where they are. And so, again, what we've done is, as as these cities have whatever word we want to use for them, uh, we 
we are continuing to kind of segregate ourselves by experience and socioeconomics that we know are only compounded by our racial demographics as well. We need to reinvent capitalism because we're losing too many people. There are too many of our fellow citizens who now live on the outskirts of hope. And unless we figure out ways to bring them back into the circle of opportunity, they're going to be stuck in poverty. They're going to be stuck without a lifeline back into the mainstream, whatever you refer to as the mainstream. But I could tell you now, I mean, I came here at 21. I didn't buy my first car until I was 34. And yet I could walk eight blocks to a metro to get to work. And nowadays, how many kids from wherever, in in my circumstances, you know, I'm the third of nine kids and... I'll, I'll do the rest later, but I mean, I found an apartment for $285. You can't find an apartment in D.C. for $285. Not anymore, no. And we had rent control. A closet. Yeah, and, 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 I st- and, and, and David Clark and so many of our leaders, uh, they served, they understood that they had to protect those of us who lived in Washington, D.C., and, and especially in the inner cities. I am, I'm struck by all of these condos going up all over the city. Beautiful And condos. I keep saying to myself, who can afford them? I mean, what kid can come out of college and get a job in Washington, D.C., make less than $12,000 a year and afford to live in D.C.? So, I mean, we, we need to reinvent capitalism. Uh, and, and make it more equitable because the income, the the rise in inequality and income uh, gap is, is only going to get worse. Uh, and I was just reading today about uh, the high price of prescription medicine. You know, I, we can't call them drugs. <laughs> 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 and and you say to yourself, I mean, if 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 you're if 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 you're a certain age and you're not covered yet by Medicare and, and you're taking hypertension and diabetes and cholesterol medicine and you're looking at over 1500 a month. I, I, saw that, I think that was the watch. I read some of the news, but y'all, I'm trying to keep y'all in business. <laughs> I'm still reading. Uh, but I'm like, how do you afford it? So w- w- this is why... You know, we need to get our politicians off their talking points and back into the reality that we're not serving a greater a greater purpose and we're not bringing people into the circle of opportunity. We're leaving. And that's that's what produced Donald Trump, in my judgment. He saw. No, no, no. I, I, I went around this country and I said, hell, uh-uh, I'm, not, I'm not giving anybody the easy pass. But I said, oh, you bunch of racists. Hell no. They were in pain. Nobody saw them. He went places where he saw them and he said, I've made it. I can help you. I can get you from being stuck. And that's the basis of any election. If people feel like they're touched or are yeah. or, or, or heard by right. a candidate, yeah. you'll get your you'll get the vote. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that uh, politicians are the people we should be looking to to solve some of the problems you're describing. I mean, we talk about. Um, Do they play a part, though? They can play a part, but I wanted to tie it into uh, the person we're here honoring, uh, Dr. King. Uh, And people often talk about what would he think of things today if he were still alive. Um, I think um, I consider Dr. King's crowning achievement the Voting Rights Act of 65. And civil um, rights. What about the Civil Rights Act? We would not be able to be in this place, in yes. this space with Brad yes. and Lissa, if yes. there was not a Civil Rights Act. Yes, yes. Or we would not be able to go I, I, frequent I would... some of those beautiful hotels off the interstate. Yes, but I think winning the franchise 
was even was even more important. Okay. And it was one of these pieces of legislation that was immediately effective. Uh, it didn't take years to work. If, if you look at some of these deep southern states, in 1964, places like Georgia had 6% black voter registration. Voting Rights Act passed the next year. By 66, it's up to 60%. It was Stacey just. Abrams it, it was. For governor. It was tremendous. It 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 worked exactly as intended. Donna, I think you said it rose to eighty yep. percent. I think if uh, if if Dr. King were alive today, um, he would be amazed at how successful the Voting Rights Act has been. The number of black elected officials They've has grown. They've gutted it though. Jay, I mean, I'm not trying. If I could just. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> and April thought I was going to be the problem. <laughs> but I said, I mean, this is this. I mean, we have now voted for the second time in a presidential election and a and 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 the midterm without the full protections of voting rights. We have. Yeah. Correct. I, thank you. And we have. <laughs> but, but, but Jason, Jason is, ma- Jason is making a, a very valid point. I, I'm, well, I'm, I, I could you, just but... finish it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> My point is that the number of black elected officials in this country has grown from fewer than 1,500 mm. in 1970 to more than 10,000 today. Correct. I think Dr. King, including, of course, a twice elected black president, that is the Voting Rights Act. That, that is directly linked to the Voting Rights Act. And I think Dr. King would be tremendously, he'd be amazed at how successful that piece of legislation had been. But to, to Donna's point, I think he would be disappointed that this increased black political clout has not done more to close these gaps, whether it's poverty, educational achievement, the criminal justice system, and so forth. You look, you mentioned Detroit. You go back and look at Coleman Young's Detroit or Marion Barry's Washington or Sharp James's Newark. The poor got poorer on their watch. And, and, and that includes black police chiefs, black school superintendents, you name it across the board. These are black run cities. And, and, and the, okay. the politicians uh, didn't get the job done. So, I'm not sure they are the people we should be looking to to address some of these problems. Okay, now, now can I come with this? Okay, I, I hear you and I, I, I hear you and I disagree to a certain extent. And let me tell you why. I think what we have forgotten in 2019, the power of that shoe leather. I think we have forgotten that. I mean, I've watched, I've been at the White House for 22 years this week. And those who got the attention of the highest office in the land were consistent and persistent and out there with shoe leather, not on the Twitter looking cute, hiding behind an emoji. Okay. People have forgotten that we, the people, we are part of we, the people. They have been bullied into submission to a certain extent and scared to say things. But once people have enough of a dis-ease, which you see, I believe, from what I've been reporting and listening to America, the dis-ease in this nation is the outgrowth of the hate. The dis-ease, we're now saying, we saw Stacey Abrams, we saw Andrew Gillum, we saw Ben Jealous, we saw all of these, we have a whole host of women that are in, in, on the Hill now in, in, in running 
offices around this nation. We have Muslim Americans. We have LGBTQ Americans. We have people who are saying, I am not going to be put in second class citizenship. I am part of we the people. So I hear you when you talk about voting rights. The Voting Rights Act has been gutted. People are upset. They have a a great dis-ease and they're showing it now because they're saying this is not what we're going back to. People have been given freedom. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. And before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. People are not going back to whence they've been. They, there was a lot of pain there. And when people, when there's movement, it's because people make it happen. We are a reactionary nation. So I agree that politicians cannot do it alone. But I would take a Maina Jackson, a Dutch Morrell, a, a Harold Washington, and I can go down the line. You know, my, my home state of Louisiana now have three black women leading the three largest cities, New Orleans, Shreveport, and Baton Rouge. I said, well, if it's up to me, if I can get a, go home this year, we've got to get Monroe, Lake Charles, and Lafayette. And just say, <laughs> but we have a Democratic governor, and now we have Medicaid expansion. Now we're looking at, you know, reforming some of our local laws to make it easier for people to come back home and to redevelop in their own neighborhood. You have to have a private uh, public partnership whenever you uh, endeavor on these major, what I call initiatives, to redevelop and rebuild our inner cities. And many of these mayors who took office took office at a time when the nation itself was faced Mm -hmm. with financial crisis. So it it, it has dawned on me, what have we done lately? And I guarantee you, if you listen to the CBC chair and the former chair as well as the current chair, the, the legislative accomplishments of, of a minority of people in the Congress and a minority of people in state legislatures, I think they've done a lot. And look at criminal justice reform that we just got through in the, in, in the Congress. Look First in California steps. now where in the legislature, Shirley Weber, they are doing criminal justice reform. We're, we're, we're making progress. But politicians, I agree with you. you, you we need the community. We need we need the church. We, we need the private sector because the politicians alone can't solve some of the problems facing not just the black community, but poor communities across yeah. the country. I agree with you, but I still like politicians. Though. And I know that, and I know this is Dr. King's day, but I have to throw in the late, great Shirley Chisholm. Oh, that's my girl. Oh, I got to oh, throw that her that in. That's my girl. That in 1972, this black woman ran for president. If you don't know about her, Google her. Go buy a book around here about Shirley Chisholm. But what, but what, yes, unbowed and unbossed. Let me tell you what she said. And this is, this is part of changing the equation changing the atmospherics, changing your community. And it it doesn't matter where you are. She said, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Pick up those chairs and go to that table with your folding chair. Be at the table to make the change that you seek. So that was, I'm, I'm sorry, we're moving on. All right. <laughs> All right, sir, yes. All right. Awesome. Thank you, your first question. All right, I'm going to bend down to get to the mic. Um, but I'm Matt Scott. I'm, I'm 26, living here in D.C. And you've talked a lot about this idea of mentioning the movements that we as people build and um, moving forward together and seeing people and making sure that people feel heard to get them to understand our situation and get on board with what we're doing. So I'm just wondering from a tangible perspective, tangible perspective if you have thoughts around things that we as individuals and community members can do to drive that change forward. Thank you for your question. Thank you. I would hope that you would get engaged. You know, I was 19 years old. I was on the Baton Rouge Fair Housing Commission. I mean, I couldn't wait to grow up. 
<laughs> and now that I just turned 29 for the second time, I'm still a millennial. Uh, I'm trying to slow it. Uh, but no, there are so many ways to serve, so many ways to make a difference in your community, so many ways in which you can begin to help not only inspire others, but be the change that you wish to see. It, it, I tell my students at Georgetown, now I'm at Howard, I'm having my first black experience since James called me left. It's you. Uh, and I'm enjoying it. And I tell my students, I say, start where you are. Don't try to jump over there. Start where you are. Get involved. Get engaged. Get informed. Become the leader that you wish to see. And don't let anybody tell you what you can and cannot do. By the time I was your age, not only had I worked on two presidential campaigns, I was a deputy campaign manager. So this is important. You, you talked about Shirley. We talked about Dr. King with the Voting Rights Act. Jesse Jackson probably had more impact on black politics coming out of the 1960s than any other individual because, because he inspired a generation to change to begin to uh, not only build political power, but use that power in, in ways that can benefit the community. And I think as a result of Reverend Jackson and changing the rules of the Democratic Party, we were able to elect our first African-American, really biracial president, because B- Barack Obama is biracial. So you are the change. And you'd be, you'd be surprised. There's a leadership vote in this country right now. And nobody's holding you back. You just need to step up and step right into that void. And we need people like you who are eager and hungry. Give me your email. I'll put you to work. A whole bunch of people running for president. They need help. And I, I, I would There's going to be a lot of about 5,000 on the Democratic side. At least, right? <laughs> You know, I would just briefly, briefly add, and I was reminded of this because you re- mentioned uh, Reverend Jackson, was that, you know, I think one of his major legacies uh, was the work he did at registering, you know, this falls into the conversation we were having about the Voting Rights Act and the decades that came after was registering those black voters in the South. We're in a moment in the United States where one of our major thematic debates is over how democratic do we want to be, right? Are, are we, you know... What restrictions are we going to put on the ballot box? How easy or difficult are we going to make it for people? If someone's been convicted of a felony, how are we going to grapple with that? Right. And this is a moment where we are really collectively debating that. Right. Um, and and how representative do we want do we want to be? And so I think that this is and those are issues that um are, are play out at a local level, right? That whether it be the reenfranchisement of, of people who've who've lost voting rights, that's a state that's a state's issue, right? The debate that's happening here in the district and has been happening here in the district about whether or not uh, we should continue to be a, a taxed but unrepresented territory, or if perhaps we should have some type of federal representation, right? Those are issues that play out locally. Those aren't issues that uh, get solved, um, you know, in the Capitol buildings necessarily, but they really build at a grassroots level. And so there's a lot of space as we debate who and what we want to be collectively for that work to be done um, by individuals. Yes, ma'am. Hi, everybody. I am Candace. I am 24. I live in D.C., originally from Chicago in one of the low-income black suburbs that you all were mentioning, which was great because people never talk about them. Um, And um, I'm also a proud member of NABJ, so hey, family. Hello. (laughs) Um, So my question was, Basically, to be human is to be born with biases. And in the age of 2019, when you have Twitter, Facebook, and then cable news networks, it's pretty 
easy to go and confirm whatever biases you may have. And I see that at the dinner table when I'm back home in Chicago, who have family members who are very anti-Trump. But when it comes to issues like illegal immigration and immigration and asylum, they'll spit out the same rhetoric that he does um, because their biases are overshadowing, you know, kind of the larger issue at hand. Um, the issue is very personal to me. I have a friend who's detained currently. And so I wanted to know on these hot button issues that politicians are kind of using as talking points to, um, I don't know, confirm biases or to encourage biases or kind of prey on biases. What can we do as family members and as students and as leaders um, to kind of combat confirmation bias and encourage people in ourselves to do the work to not just look at what those speaking points are and those talking points are and what's coming out of the mouths of people on the Hill, but what the facts are. Jason. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I would spend less time on social media, frankly. I, I limit it uh, myself. And it is toxic uh, on social but, media right now. Toxic. And yeah. young people uh, like yourself probably process this stuff differently than uh, than someone like me. Um, uh, but you're right. People, uh, we're, we're in a media environment where people want um, their biases confirmed. And, and the idea of uh, sitting home at night and flipping through the channels and hearing what uh, CNN says and Fox says and, and, and MSNBC is over. You, you lock it in. And same goes with the material you're going to read. Same thing's coming through your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed. And it is a, it is a problem. Um, I, I think uh, my profession is feeding the problem, frankly, to a large extent. Um, uh, I, and I'm an opinion journalist. Uh, I'm paid to offer my opinion on current events. Um, I try and make it an informed opinion, but at the end of the day, people are, are, are reading me to find out what I think personally about a particular issue. Um, that is not the job of the White House correspondent for the New York Times. Um, but that distinction seems to have been lost, uh, particularly since Donald Trump was elected president. Um, uh, when Donald Trump is long gone, I think the media is going to have a hard time getting back any credibility it ever had in the first place uh, going forward and saying, oh, we're back to being objective again and calling the shots down the line. Um, so uh, uh, it's, okay, it's, you it's, see it's me a ready, problem. Right again. <laughs> it's, it, it is, it is a, it's a problem. Okay. So I appreciate you and I appreciate that there, there, the line has been obscured to some extent for certain journalists. In that White House briefing room, I will say you now have those who are far left, very left, and then you have those who are far right, and then you have those in the middle who tried to do the Walter Cronkite, that's the way it was. Um, and even with that, you it is critical now, and I don't know if, if, if fact-checking you consider... Um, something that's that that shouldn't happen but there is a need now in that briefing room to fact check sarah huckabee sanders and the president and those who spent and even on the democratic side you have to make sure that the facts are straight and they're true um and right now i ask everyone to employ critical thinking look for the facts first look for true journalism and then get into opinion you need to know what's going on we have to employ critical thinking because so much has is been moved the 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 envelope or, or the line has been moved now i mean just for instance the issue of terror the issue of terror at the wall um the president pulled back on that because it's been found not to be true 
you know, what they're saying. And then I even asked the vice president and the Homeland Security head when we had a meeting, uh, when the press had a meeting with them, I said, well, since you talked about terrorism, I said, can you quantify and qualify the numbers of those who are suspected terrorists who've gone through the district court system? They couldn't. And that would tell you if there is a real terrorism issue at the southern border. So we have to do a lot more digging and a lot more fact checking. Yes, there are some who are believing the spin and pushing it out there. But I implore every person who's watching, reading and listening to use critical thinking when you take it in. Thank you. Thank Thank you for that question. Thank you. Hello, everybody. I'm Eve Veronica, and I do have uh, a brief comment, and I have a question, and my comment is to Jason. I'm one of those generational Washingtonians who's been here, who stayed here, and I take issue with what you said about the poor in Washington, D.C., under Marion Barry's term, and particularly first and second as president, and I differ with you on... uh, the, the findings that you put out there about uh, Washington, D.C., the poor okay. and the marginalized being. So, you know, I just want to put that out there okay, because the I lived it. But now my question yes. uh, uh, is this, and I do read the newspapers, and I watched you ask your your uh, question, too, like Donna, is how university taught me to. Hey, H.U., you know. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> But at Morgan any bears rate, eat the bison, right. but more, moving on. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I know I appreciate that, but I had I had to uh, I had to take that that stand. Um, complicity of the media, and I want each of you you can comment on that because one of the things that uh, was very disturbing during the campaign and even afterwards was the the way in which the media hung on every word that 45 said, you know, if he breathed, it was a front news story. And, uh, you know, it just was almost as if they were running to do that. And I saw, uh, I was visiting in Charleston, South Carolina, and I chatted briefly with someone from CNN, commentator, and he was all excited because CNN had had, uh, grossed over a million dollars and he said, for the, yeah, for the first time during the campaign. And it really is a problem. And now what I can we speak do to that, about that? I think that? we might need to go I back. know yeah. you can't. I yeah, know but, you can't. Yeah. But just in terms of the complicity. And I know, you know, they have to get a story and all of that. But to hang on his every breath. So I got you. So we're going to go. Let's let's start with Don and go down down the line. I made a lot of money when Donald Trump was running for president. Yes, I know. And I said that. Uh, honestly, as somebody uh, that every time he did a we tweet, we're not mad at you. Don't please don't. Uh, Thank you, money girl. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and even when he hated on me with one of my books, it became an instant bestseller. Yes. I said the next time I write one for for color girls who. Like Trump. (laughs) That'll be a bestseller. No, the guy is a marketing genius. Yes. Okay. He took a four-car funeral on the Republican side and turned it into a real-life circus. And his his coverage, his ability to uh, control the narrative... He got a lot of free press. There's no question about it. But now, as as April mentioned, it comes with a cost. The cost is they have to fact check every last word and every simple statement. But I want to say something. I'm a pundit. I'm not a journalist. Okay? I am also paid to give my opinions. 
but I also believe that uh, as pundits, we need to know a little bit about the topics that we're talking about. <laughs> and I see so many pundits out there today who've never worked on one campaign, let alone have seven to 10 presidentials, I 55 know. congressional, Amen. 19 state Amen. and local, 49 states. All right, all right. I got it all here. All right, all right. Okay? <laughs> all right. And I've, wor I've worked in 49 states. One more state, I'm going to become Miss USA without the bikini. Ooh. All right, so Donna. So my, my point I'm making is, is that you also have people on television because of all of these biases. You talked about biases because they have to have one of this one and one of this one. I used to go on TV and I used to wear red and everybody thought I was a Delta. I said, no, I'm pretending to be a Republican. <laughs> because they had three So people are going to say that I'm a Democrat because I have blue on. You're damn right you do. Like I'm purple. All right. So my point is, is that there's a lot of biases out there. <laughs> to the young lady's point, there's a lot of biases. But in terms of Donald Trump, he has been a rating genius and a king he has whatever I but don't there's know a downside to that yeah, too you say that, there's I a downside know. to that there and I'm, okay Go there's ahead. a every time there is a downside to that every time for press like me and it's been in it's been in the news and it we have targets on our heads because of that mm -hmm. and it's it's more real than you would believe mm -hmm. um and i'm not going to go into it any further but it's not a joke and there are crazy people out here who want to enact things if the president says you're a loser or you don't know what you're doing. I'm a winner. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing this before he came, and I'll be doing it after That's he's right. Gone. That's the spirit. That's 22 spirit. years, and that's, that's not right. by happenstance. And I've written three books about it. But for some strange reason, I'm considered unpatriotic. I'm considered whatever. I'm considered everything but a child of God. But I'm doing my job. And when you speak to inform the masses, when we try to shed light on dark spaces, the truth, we are chastised. We're called out of our names. We're followed. We're taunted at these rallies. I can't go to a rally. I cannot go to a rally and cover a rally. For real. So it is, it is that toxic now. And this is real. This is not just, just tongue-in-cheek. This is real. Mm -hmm. More real mm -hmm. than you know. I mm -hmm. lived it. I, yeah, we both. What I will say and I'm going to say it. Um, there are a lot of people uh, in our profession who've been targeted. But I will say that um, i got to thank my sister Donna for checking in on me and me checking in on her, and that's all I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. yep. That's all mm -hmm. I'm going to say. But what can we do? What can we do? Stay Those vigilant. Stay vigilant and call it out. Call it out. Not just on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I'm no, serious. I'm serious. Uh, an emoji do doesn't mm -hmm. do anything. Mm -hmm. It might get, you know, you get, you, you, you're organized on Twitter, but you're marching the street with that shoe leather. Absolutely. Scrape up those Christian liberal tongs. Absolutely. So, I'm a marcher. I know mm -hmm. you are. Thank yes. you. Go ahead. Uh -huh. Thank uh, you. Jason and Wes. Wes, go ahead. Well, I think you know, briefly... I do think the media faces a challenge coming into the 2020 election. Um, one of the things we, we saw in 2016 was here you did have a candidate who was willing to say and do things that other can't, that in the past no presidential candidate of any political stripe would have said or done. Mm -hmm. And in the media, we have a bias towards the unusual, towards the odd, towards the sensational, no matter what it is, no and matter the topic. Right? Right and so here, when you have a reality show host yes. who, who is bringing the sexual assault accusers of the husband of his of his opponent to the debate when he when he is just riffing for hours at a time at some points at rallies it created a media spectacle that i i don't know that one we collectively did a very good job of grappling uh, of grappling with and two i don't 
necessarily believe we have done a good job of grappling with it since then. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've seen this just, just recently, a week or two ago, in which the president announced he was going to have a, a presidential news conference ostensibly to provide an update about what was going on uh, with the border wall and instead just just blasted his talking points into the homes of millions of Americans, right? Uh, that we still deal with the, uh, a debate, an ethical debate over, well, if the White House calls a press conference, do you show it live in real time, knowing that the reality is you are likely going to be broadcasting to millions of Americans demonstrable falsehoods? Or do you not do that? Uh, and, and how do we, and I think that very often those of us in the media cling to certain types of conventions, um, the way we've always done it. Um, and that, and I think we collectively need to have a, a better and more developed critical thinking skill about what our role is in terms of informing. Uh, you'd see this, you know, I, one of my pet peeves was we, and part of this is the self-obsession of the media, which we're certainly guilty of, right? But every time the president would say we're fake news, we would run around screaming, the president says, don't believe us. Well, that's not actually a particularly effective way to convince people that they should believe you. Uh, the, the, b- repeating the falsehood over and over and over again spreads the falsehood. Yes. And and I think that, again, I don't know that we've collectively done a very good job of divorcing ourselves from our convention that this president, and I don't mean this it, in a, suge- a subjective good way or a bad way, is completely different than any other president we've ever had before. Yeah. And yeah. so therefore should be treated and covered differently if, if our goal is to get to the same outcome as we would have with the other presidents, which is fair, accurate coverage where if someone engages in our work, they walk away more informed and not more confused. Jason, should the equal time rule be back? Should we have that back in place so that a Donald Trump or whoever the Democratic candidate is cannot monopolize the time with other candidates? I I think it would be a mistake to go about rearranging institutions in response to Donald Trump, permanently rearranging things as if he'll be president forever. Um, I, I, I I think that would be a mistake. I think journalists need to... Remember what their jobs are. The job is not you. The, 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 when I was learning to be a journalist, um, I was always warned not to make me the story. That's right. <laughs> Today, that is regularly regularly done. Um, and journalists need to get back to um, uh, to doing their jobs the mm-hmm. way uh, uh, they were taught to do them and the way that they should be done. Um, I do agree with Donna that uh, people who go on television and talk about politics ought to know what they're talking about. And um, <laughs> given how Many of us got the 2016 election wrong. <laughs> I'm just happy you still indulge political commentators uh, who were so wide of the mark uh, two years ago. Um, uh, I do want to respond to something you said earlier uh, in response to something I said earlier. Um, the, the, the data on um, black retrogression in terms of poverty and income it's pretty, it's pretty clear. From the 1970s through the 80s, even through the 1990s, uh, the poorest blacks in America saw their incomes fall at double the rate of comparable whites in this country. Um, so in an, there have been case studies of places like Atlanta under Maynard Jackson, uh, where the, the, even with, with, with blacks receiving favorable treatment in terms of contractors, um, in terms of deals with the city, um, in terms of hiring, the black poor lost ground. Um, so it, it, it can be shown empirically that in many of these many of these cities, um, and, and, and the point I was making is that I think that's something that would have surprised Dr. King. I think he thought that black political power 
would help the poor more than it has. Mm -hmm. And I think um, uh, he'd be quite shocked that things have not turned out quite mm -hmm. as he anticipated. That was the, the, the point I was trying to make. No, thank you. Thank and I appreciate you. that. I was only talking about DC. Thank uh -huh. you so much. Uh -huh. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh -huh. And unfortunately, um, I'm so thankful yeah. that, that Jason right. is here tonight. He's He came in just specifically for this, and he's got to catch a flight. We pray that he catches that flight tonight. <laughs> I thank you. I mean, it's it, that's the realness, what's happening today. You know, yeah. So, But we, in, in just a few minutes, we, you're leaving at 830. We got just a couple minutes. Yes, sir. Good evening. I'm going to hold I'm, him as long as I can. <laughs> I'm Smith. Um, I'm a native of Washington, and I'm um, 72 years old, so I've seen a lot of this gone through. If you've been here, you remember uh, urban renewal and what happened in Washington, D.C., to your point. But, uh, and um, I guess you say full disclosure, I'm a Green Party member. Okay. We know what happened yes. in the, we know what happened in, thank you, thank you. We know what happened, <laughs> <laughs> we know what happened in the uh, um, public debates the last time around where the Democrats and Republicans ganged up and said, no, don't let the Green Party in. Well, we went to court for that, and the judge said it was illegal and we can now be in the next debate, so watch out, y'all. But more to the point. Um, I'm old school, and the symptoms that you've been describing up here and everything like this are all functions of capitalism. Now, my question to you is, would you be amenable to doing what the Swedes and the Norwegians did in the 30s, that is, dispose of capitalism, get rid of the 1%? Donna, you talked about capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, I do believe that we need to look for some 21st century solutions. I still think that our, our model is based on uh, uh, another century and in this new age, this new era of digital technology, artificial intelligence, we really need to take a deeper look at uh, who's getting a piece of the pie and if, if everyone can have a share. Um, but no, I, I consider myself to be a, uh, a capitalist with a conscience. Is and, there such a thing? And and, and oh, uh, yes, wow. yes. <laughs> you asked the question and she gave you an answer, uh, Jason. Capitalists with a Jason. conscience. Um, yes, no, I would not do away with uh, free market capitalism. I think it's um, got a, a it, it's not perfect, but I take it over uh, any other system out there. I think it's helped to raise more people out of poverty uh, than any other system, not only here in the United States but around the world. And uh, and so uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, uh, go in a different direction in that in that sense. Wes, well, I'm not going to weigh in on the economic system per se, but what I will say is that I, I think that in this moment, it's going to be. I think it's very interesting because we have seen the fact that we're even having this conversation in our political dialogue speaks to how much this conversation has shifted. And I think that as we enter, especially the Democratic primary for 2020, there are going to be potential solutions and and debates that are happening in public that for a very long time I think the left have happened in private and. Uh, Beyond that, and one of those reasons is that for, and we saw this during the Obama administration, was that even when you had a relatively moderate capitalist black president proposing things like a health care plan that had been crafted by someone like Mitt Romney being called socialism, it has opened the door for many people on the left to say, well, then let's advocate real socialism. And, and there is a real thematic debate happening about uh, what does equity look like, what does fairness look like, uh, that 
is happening with diff- with the extremes being pushed out in ways that they had not in public before, um, and in a more honest, I think, dialogue and debate happening in public than they had before. And so I think that you know it's interesting when you look at the polling, certainly of young people, ideas like socialism, which for a long time um, would have been a a word used to a demagogued word, a word used to scare you away. You, you pull millennials, most millennials say, so that sounds all right. <laughs> right? <laughs> that wait, you, you mean to tell me that we're gonna have health care? Okay. Seventy percent of millennials uh, would like to do away with capitalism. Seventy percent. Forty percent of millennial women would like to leave the country. <laughs> we, we, we have issues that we have to resolve as a country. The wealth gap is creating a great deal of social tensions. And whether we look at it a 20th century model from Western Europe or a 21st century model that we can come up with, we have to make some significant changes. Otherwise, we're leaving a lot of people behind. And you can't do that in 2019. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Paul. Um, I'm a student. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. Buy his books. Thank Thank you, Jason. Thank you. And his books will be on sale after he did sign. He pre-signed knowing that he had to leave. Thank you once again to Jason Riley. Um, Yes, sir. My name is Paul. I'm a student at Howard University School of Law. Um, so I was in the administration. I worked in Brooklyn in 16. And I'm wondering what sorts of things that candidates can do in the 2020 field to make the stakes of the election more clear to people like white suburban voters who don't think that whichever way they vote is going to matter that much and to people who don't think that if they even vote, it's going to matter, like people who live in these black suburbs. Like what kind of things can people do to make these stakes more clear and discernible for those populations? Well, first of all, we're going to have a very dynamic political year with over 30 candidates that uh, I assume will be making their announcements in the next couple of weeks. They're going to travel all over the country. We're going to have debates in every state. Every state uh, will be important in 2020, especially because those of us who are unpledged uh, delegates uh, no longer have the, the right to vote. I see my colleague Lorraine Miller, the co-chair of the DNC Rules Committee, former clerk of the United States House of Representatives from the great state of Texas, Lorraine Miller. Raise your I, hand, yeah, Lorraine. Yeah, yeah, I see Raise you back hand. there. My I glasses see, yeah. now. So I think this is going to be a very good time for the party. We need uh, a primary season. We don't have a front runner, and there's no gatekeepers. So this debate, this conversation that we're starting, it's not only going to go in the living rooms in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, but it's going to be in living rooms all over the country. So you need to be part of that conversation, part of that debate, so we can write the most progressive platform for 2020. This is a great time to be a Democrat. Do you think Joe Biden's going to run? Do you think Joe Biden's going to run? Well, Uncle Joe has every right to run, and I'm sure he, he might toss his gloves in the race. Okay. All right. Uh, I do think that you know I, I do think that you have a democratic base that is mobilized in a way uh, far beyond even what it was in 2016. Uh, I, I think that most political prognosticators fundamentally did not believe Donald Trump could win the election. And I think that that trickled down into a lot of suburban voters and Democratic-leaning voters. Uh, You also had a candidate in Hillary Clinton who for 30 years had been demonized by the right um, and had a unique – and much of that was gender. And and part of that also was that she had personally been demonized for so long, right? Um, And those are dynamics that will will not be in play, uh, assumedly, unless she she ran again. Um, But it will assumedly not be in play in 2020. I I do think that one of the lessons of 2018, when you look at both the, the, the 
the turnout and the excitement, we had in many states presidential level turnout for a midterm election. Um, and, and not just for Democrats, in many states for Republicans as well, um, rivaling uh, presidential level turnout. So part of that speaks to the dy dynamic races that were happening around the country because candidates were competing in every race. Um, that you had exciting and dynamic candidates um, competing in places where they had been told they could not compete. I, I remember the eyes were, I mean, I, I covered Congress and I remember when Beto O'Rourke announced he was going to run for this seat. And we are like, wait, that guy from the back bench of the Texas, uh, you know, congressional delegation. Um, I that remember that guy's the hottest guy right now. Right. Well, and I, well, I remember being with uh, Stacey Abrams years ago and the work she was doing um, to register voters um, and, and to attempt to build a new kind of black majority in, in Georgia and the work she was doing in the state house there. And so, again, and, and you see this up and down races in Kentucky, races in Tennessee, places where uh, there had not where the past Democrats hadn't even fielded candidates very often, where they didn't know where now seats. And so I think that in 2018, I think, one, or 2020, in addition to the conversations happening at the top of the ticket, there's going to be a lot of pressure on these Senate races as well as these House races again um, to, to see it. And I think if the Democrats, um, as well as the Republicans, field competitive candidates across the board, in addition to whoever's at the top of the ticket, I think that's going to be largely determinant uh, what happens across the country. We got to also make sure that we, we can get the attention of white suburban women. Um, they, they, they showed up in 2018, but didn't show up in 2016. As you well know, Trump received an overwhelming majority of white women votes in 2016. I also think that we cannot forget the attack on our country, on our democracy, and, and the role that that played in undermining confidence in our candidate. Uh, the Russian attack on the DNC wasn't just aimed at taking out our infrastructure. It was aimed at disrupting and creating discord within the Democratic Party and demonizing our candidate, Hillary Clinton. So while she lost the Electoral College by less than 100,000 votes, she did win the popular vote by, what, over 3 million votes. Yes, so she did. She, and, and look, for, for a woman candidate to, uh, in my judgment... Go that far. Thank you. What we saw in 2018... I think was the beginning of a new era in women's politics in American American life. It is the year, yes, that was the year of the woman. This is the year of the woman. Yes, ma'am, to another yeah. woman. My question is about women. <laughs> the women's march, uh, which is going to happen on Saturday. Um, I've been. We pray if it doesn't snow. Yeah. And ice. There's been all kinds of swirling talk and Elijah Muhammad this and the Jewish women versus black women. I just want to put my hands in my ears, go down there with a sign. The LA people have peeled off. They're separate. The Chicago people peeled off. They're separate. I can go down there because I'm anonymous. You folks just said you can't go down to a rally, but if you could go, I mean, what would, I, I, no, what would your certain sign rallies say? I cannot go to. That's you, what we were if saying. If you were going to make a sign for Saturday's march, what, what would it say? We need some healing. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm going down to the great state of Texas and then over to Indiana for the MLK ceremony. But if I was there, my sign would simply say, you know, women's power. I think there's so much power now that we are recognizing our power, not just in the boardroom, but also our power in the political arena. And I would hope that we would find ways to heal some of the divisions that have come up as a result of uh, the conversations that are taking place among a few group of leaders. We have somehow another marginalized uh, a, a few women 
and saying that they're creating d- d- dissension when the overwhelming majority of women who are marching, they're marching because they are they're tired of being silent. They want their issues heard, and we should not lose the larger point. I often think that we major in the minors when we should be looking at the larger issues. And now's the time to march, and we can solve our resolve our problem. Every major movement that I've been involved with, there, there's been tension, there's been dissension. I mean, even the civil rights marches of the 1960s, there was dissension and tension. I mean, John Lewis, they were afraid of John's Lewis, John Lewis' uh, remarks at the 63 march. I mean, so we have to, and back in the 1983 march that I did, the 20th anniversary, they were afraid. They were afraid to have an openly gay speaker. I remember those days. So we need to be clear that we've come a long way, but we can resolve this. And as you all know, there are so many different variety and, and, and forms of women. But, but we should embrace who we are. And we should not let people sow this division. And I hope you're out there. I won't be there. I'll be, I'll be in Texas. And God knows there's a reason why I like to go to Texas. Okay? I got, I'm working. <laughs> so, so this is going to be a first. Lissa, the owner of the store, she wants, she wants to, she has, she wants to give an answer because she has, she, she'll tell you. I, I just because of because of your question, I just want to recommend there are a couple books. You should read Rage Becomes Her, and you should read Good and Mad. And and the thing that's really important about your question that Donna spoke to as well that I think everybody needs to remember. When people gain power who have not been in a majority, they are a threat. Yes. And the way that the threatened minority, in this case, the white patriarchy, for lack of a better term, responds is to sow discord, is to try to create division, is to try to divide so that that movement is broken and the unity is broken and it's fragmented, which makes it less threatening. And so right now, of course, there are tensions in the women's movement because there are a lot of different needs and, and, and requirements and obligations and conditions that are being met. But that doesn't deny the universal need for women to unite around a common set of, of concerns and aspirations. And it's what Donna said, exactly. we cannot forget that. You cannot allow the, the power that is to try to suppress the power that should be. And in this case... <laughs> You know, the, the patriarchy is the minority. Sorry, white guys. And I have, a, you know, blah, 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 sons and all that stuff. But my point is just that you go read those books or anybody who's interested. And, and, she, and Rebecca Tracer, by the way, talks a lot about the racial divisions of the women's movement in, in a very compelling way. So sorry to interrupt. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for that ad, that powerful ad, Lisa. That's the owner of Politics and Prose. Yes, ma'am. You're next. Thank you for that question. Hi, my name is Nora. I'm a student at American University. Um, earlier, you all touched on the Trump demographic. My question is, um, a lot of people argue that Democrats lost um, the 2016 election after Hillary referred to the Trump demographic as, quote, deplorables. Um, my question is, first of all, do you agree with that? Second of all, what can the Democrats do to win back that demographic? And do we need them to win 2020? Well, we should not leave any voter behind, and I would hope that we would continue to reach out to those uh, voters, whether they live in Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan. Uh, September 9th, I I was there when she said that word, and I remember the context. And my my feeling at that moment was, uh uh-oh, they're going to take that out of context. They're going to 
the same way they took that about Obama when they said clinging to your guns. Uh, because we live in a culturally sensitive society. And I don't think she meant it in a demeaning way, but yet, as you can imagine, the way it was played out. No, I don't think that was the cause of the loss. I think by October 28th, when Mr. Comey put out that... That, uh, yeah. the, it, that nailed the coffin shut. I said it, and I'll say it again. It was a day in which it felt like a 16-wheeler, an 18-wheeler, hit the campaign. And it took us days to regain our rhythm. So, and it also undermined the confidence that she was gaining with voters. Uh, and as you well know, if you go back and look, October 7th was the day I thought that Donald Trump would lose the election. That was the grabber by the genital day. And that same day, the FBI and, and 16 other uh, agencies said that Russia had impacted out what Russia was involved in hacking of our election. 45 minutes between those two statements. Absolutely. 45 minutes between And then before the, before the 6 o'clock news, John Podesta email. That Sunday when I was on TV, other three topics, I was talking about Podesta's email. And, of course, four days later, I was talking about my own doggone emails, half of them that went out there, including the one saying that I gave one of the smartest women I've ever worked for in my entire life a question about the water crisis in Flint. But you got to deal with what you got to deal with. And we need to be much smarter about our politics and much smarter when people tell you something. Hillary had a lifetime of commitment to jobs and justice and early childhood education. People forgot... People forgot the fact that she was a champion long before she married Bill, and I like Bill, but before she met Bill, she was a woman in her own right, and she had been a United States senator and a secretary of state, and yet when it came to talking about issues, they wanted her to talk about what he did. That's true. And what, not what she accomplished. So we got we to gotta be smart about that in 2020. And let me tell you, I know Elizabeth, I know Amy, I know Kamala, I know Tulsi, I know all of the women, and a whole bunch of men who are running. <laughs> And Kirsten, yeah. Yeah, see what I mean? I'm missing them already. I got to write them down. I know. And they're fantastic. And we and like this whole likability. I don't care if you don't like me. I hope you like my gumbo. <laughs> Please don't go in the gumbo. <laughs> I mean, my point is, is that we, we major in the minus when it came to talking about Hillary. It was like when Sonia Sotomayor was, was nominated, people asked me on TV, well, what do you think? Why did she put pork in her beans? I'm like, huh? But you know what, Donna, you've, you've hit on something really, really important. We are now, <laughs> politics is so cerebral. Yeah. It's so cerebral. But when we can understand grabbing by the pee. We can understand all this crazy stuff. You're fired. You know, look at you. You know, right. all this kind of gotcha game. We can understand that. But the problem is there used to be a time when we would look at the candidate. We'd say, OK, he's 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 aesthetically pleasing. OK, uh-huh. then, let's let's think about his 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 intellectual prowess and we and, and his what his background was, what his pedigree was. Now we're worried about his likability. Does he make me laugh? Uh, you know, does he entertain me? No, do I want to have a beer with him? Hell no, I want to have a beer with a man unless he's watching the Saints. The Saints won. I know. All right. <laughs> Moving on, but thank you. I hope I hope we answered your question. Thank you. Next question. Thank you. When the Saints go marching in. Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, my name is Greg Grant. I'm from Houston, Texas. Uh... I'm a transportation planner. I got my master's in community and regional planning from the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, I wrote my professional report slash thesis on the impacts of um, the development of 
light rail stations in uh, low income communities. And I took a look at how it impacts those people um, and how they're pushed out of those communities. A lot of the um, a lot of the best practices I looked at that were sort of ways to try to combat these issues were kind of band-aids. And I wanted to look at the, I guess, underlying issues, mm. um, which have been kind of cooked into the Constitution and uh, the systemic uh, oppression and economics. Um, so I found I wanted to look and see if there was any policy that had been passed to you know, help uh, black low-income people try to come out of this uh, economic disparity. I found uh, H.R. 40 by uh, Congressman John Conyers, first introduced in uh, 1989, and the title of it is The Commission to Study Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just read the, the small paragraph just to give you, anybody who's not so sure. Can on, you give us your question? Because we, we got a few minutes and everyody, I want to get everybody there. And I hear because I got an answer to you, but can you give you a question? I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay. It's a large setup. But um, I just want to know what y'all's. Uh, <laughs> What y'all's thoughts um, on reparations are and how impactful do you think it will be if we uh, pass the bill, which is just to study the... Um okay, so can I... Okay, thank you. Stay there for a minute. Two things. On transportation, Anthony Fox, the former head of transportation, at the end of the administration, he had done a study and he was trying to push forward to the next administration to take a look at the discriminatory practices in transportation. He explained that the interstate system and the beltway system was meant to keep one side in and the other side out. Mm -hmm. And it started from there. You know, with that transportation. So one side is inside, one side is out to keep the twain should not meet. So that, that begets all the other, you know, the light rail, the the bus system, um, and and I and that a short answer to that. Um, my first book, I tackled the issue of reparations as a healing, a possible healing, asking people, and 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 Donna will tell you from the time I started at the White House, when the race initiative happened with Bill Clinton. Oh my God, everybody was saying that's the girl who's always asking for Mr. President, will you apologize for slavery? And I'm, it, it, but it's it's real. When he started that race initiative issue, people were thinking about, okay, if you're talking about race and healing, there's this black-white dynamic that has to be healed. And also the Native American dynamic that really wasn't on the table like it should have been. But when it came to the black-white issue, will there be an apology for slavery? There were some blacks that were for, some blacks that were against it. He was listening to a cross-section of black people, and he they never apologized. You know why? And this is the truth. They never got to, it never came to that form of, okay, we're going to apologize or not. You know, one of the main reasons why, because if you say, I'm sorry, then you have to come out with some kind of healing, and that is reparations. How do you determine reparations now in, was it 20, no, it was 1997, 1997, 98. What is, it's not 40 acres and a mule, and 40 acres and a mule now would equate to a house in Potomac and, and a Land Rover. So, and, and then, then you get into the question, who actually is black now? And all of that was, go- yes, I am African-American, period, end of story. And if I do, what is it, 22 and 23 in me, okay, fine, but I'm African-American. So, I mean, I'm five generations removed from the last known slave in my family, sold on the auction block in Fayetteville, North Carolina. His name was Joseph Dollar Brown. 
So I am black and I am proud of my heritage and I'm proud of from whence we've come and where we're going. So with that said, I have asked that question over and over again. George W. Bush said, well, Africans participated, so they didn't deal with it. Yes. President Obama's administration was like, well, why would the black president apologize for slavery? The optics of it did not look right. And you know what the answer is with this president. I'm not even going to ask. I'm not asking anything anymore about are you racist or anything. You just watch and see what it is. You just, if it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, walks like a duck, it's a duck. But as we, as we begin to commemorate the anniversary or the birthday of Dr. King, let's not forget this is also the 400th and uh, the 400th year of the first African-Americans to arrive on our shores. And so 244 years of slavery. And based on what I've learned from my own family, when slavery was over, they had no car, they had no, they had no home, they had, no, they had nothing. They started from scratch. Uh, from 1863 to 1964, yeah. getting uh, public accommodations, you had a whole nother struggle with Jim Crow. And then from 1964, 65 forward. We, we, we're not that far from where we started, and yet we're still having this conversation. I've always believed that we needed something like they had in South Africa, where we talk about reconciliation, where we're able to put this stuff on the table. Look, I, I'm, I'm more like James Brown. I don't want nobody to give me nothing, just open the door, I get it myself. <laughs> but I don't want nobody to to hold me back. I'm not going That's back. Right. I'm not going back. I experienced, I was in a Catholic church last week, first Sunday, and I almost cried because my church is now asking us to forgive them. When I started in a Catholic church, I'm from Louisiana, so y'all know the story. When I started in church, I had to sit in the back because I was black. Now I can sit anywhere I want. And this church is now apologizing. So we need, and the church needs some, excuse me, the church needs some reconciliation now. We need it in our country. We don't have it. We can't talk as Americans about our shared experiences. No, we can't. Because we don't have a path. We don't have a, so we have to create those spaces in our community. And that's why uh, I appreciate what Politics and Prose is yes. doing every year. Yes, Because at least we can talk about it here in the District yes. of Columbia. I hope we answered your question. You want to? Uh, really, really briefly, I would suggest reading the book, The Color of Law, that came out a year or two ago by Richard Rothstein. Uh, that talks specifically about uh, the way that both the federal government through public housing as well as local city and municipal governments um, system, uh, systematically uh, enforced and codified racial segregation um, and that racial residential segregation is upstream uh, to the racial disparities we now see in transportation um, and access, right? And, and, that's, and that's where a lot of that is rooted. Um, I, I do think that it would make sense for us to study and explore the ideas around reparations. And too often we have conversations about reparations. We base that conversation in slavery. When you read someone like Coates, he would make the argument and has made the argument that fine, let's have an argument. Let's have a discussion of reparations based in redlining. Let's have a conversation um, in terms of housing policy that in American wealth um, comes from our ability to own homes. And we know yes. uh, why black Americans have not had the opportunity to own their homes and pass that wealth 
down um, while white Americans have, right? And so I think that as we grapple with the reality that we're only about 50 years into full franchisement of African Americans in the United States of America, uh, I think there's a real conversation and debate to be had, even if you were to set slavery aside, what other systematic structural forms of discrimination have lasted into our into our current lifetimes and our current generations that we might explore a way um, to provide reparations for. And so I, I would be complete, I'd be fascinated in a world in which they ever were to bring Conyers' bill up for a vote, uh, much less, you know, begin studying it, what they might come up with. Thank you. Thanks. You got more than what you bargained for. All right, so, okay, we so appreciate you. Um, this has been a great evening. Have you enjoyed it thus far? So here's what we're going to do. Because the time is drawing near for us to wrap this up, I'm going to ask everyone in line to offer their question, and we're going to answer them. Um, just offer your question. We'll write them down and answer them. Then we're going to wrap up, and you can uh, have your book signed and what have you. We are so thankful for Politics and Prose tonight. Oh, we're so Thank thankful you. for Brad and Lisa, and thankful for all of you for coming out tonight. Yes, ma'am, your question. Um, concerning polarization... Uh, do you think that there's something wrong with Congress or do you think it's flawed by design? Thank you. Yes, sir. Hello. And this is an author as well. Yes. <laughs> My name is James Morant and I am a fossil. Um, I, I am um, a child of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s. Um, so I've seen things go from overt to covert to overt with, with respect to racism. My question is, can you address the issue related to, or issues related to white fragility? And, and what I mean by that is, I, can, I, I heard um, Ms. Brazil talk about the fact that uh, we need to have conversations. I can't have a conversation if, if I have to make you feel comfortable about what I'm asking or what I'm, what I'm conveying to you. Um, so um, I'd like each one of you to address the issue of uh, white fragility. Thank, Thank you. Thank you sir. very much. Thank you. And be fearless, April. Thank you, Mr. Morant. Thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. All right, quick question. David Atkinson. Uh, my question is about um, positive race based policies. How can people propose and frame uh, race based policies uh, to deal with past injustices without and, and deal with the accusation of? You're just playing identity politics and you're just, you know, just playing, you know, doing a show or something like that. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, hi, you guys are great. I'm Les Henderson. I wanted to ask you guys about the racial issues within the Democratic Party. Because now a lot of us as black people are going to the Green Party and going to other parties because we see the bullshit for what it is. You guys are great. Okay, Donna, we, okay. I grew up watching you on TV. But what is your honest opinion about that? Okay, we're gonna Do you sense, feel we're like the white the folks words. led you out, you know, kind of left you hanging out to dry when everything happened? And what do you do? We what do you what do you guys think about us go, moving forward? What do you think about you know? What do you think about the Democratic Party and the state of the actual Democratic Party right now? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right, all right, Donna, you got a lot to chew on right there. You know, <laughs> I, I'm I'm proud to be a Democrat. I am proud to be the first black woman to manage a presidential campaign, and I'm proud to be. A woman who has served this chair twice. Right. I will not do it again. Uh, <laughs> I love my party. 
even with all of its flaws. Because this is a party that gave me a seat at the table, a party that allows me to continue to serve, and a party that has allowed me to run campaigns and candidates for the last 40 years. And so is it a perfect party? No, it's like every family, there's some di dysfunction in the, in the room. And yes, I've been known to cuss people out. Uh, <laughs> but I, I like this party. I'm, I like the fact that we have at least three African-American lieutenant governors. They all are Democrats. I like the fact that at least two of the African-Americans serving in the Senate are Democrats. I like the fact that the Attorney General of New York State now is a black woman, uh, you know. You don't feel like we're, you don't feel like it's pawns? <clears throat> no. Hell the hell really? no. Okay, we can't we, hear you from the seat. <laughs> we, we fight each and every day for an agenda that's inclusive, that empowers people, that broadens uh, economic opportunity. I believe the party functions to, to help those who want to make a difference in the public sphere. Look, you have hundreds of political parties, not just Greens, not communists, libertarians. Right, right but, but you have I to have admit there's been a shift of us. Ma'am, ma'am, no, 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 no. We, we, like, we, we're running out of time. Oh. She's trying to answer I, your questions. And you can talk to me afterwards, because, you know, I ain't got nowhere to go. I got, just got to go home and watch April. Oh. <laughs> oh, you're here. Oh. <laughs> That's my girl. Well, it is a, it is a, it is, it is, it is a, it is a, it is a strong party because of the diversity, not just at the top, but the diversity at the grassroots. And I'm proud to be a Democrat, and I'm going to continue to fight within the party that I know best. Now, the the first question regarding polarization. But can I, can, before you go there, I want to say this to you as well. Um, this is not just about party. I remember, and, and I'm going to say this: mm -hmm. there is a thing called coming together, coming together. I remember during the Bush years, Donna, and I'm going to say it, Donna used to have dinner and lunch and whatever, what have you, with Karl Rove. You know, there used to be a time when, when both parties would come together just to talk, to try to figure it out. So I, I'm putting that on the table because she wouldn't say it. But, and there used to be a time when, you know, people would think that I would be able to talk to both sides. Now, I mean, I have a lot of good right. Democratic sources and Republican sources. Not as many Republican sources as I used to, but they're real good Republican sources. But it used to be a time that people could come together. This 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 town is now polarized. Friends have, have not are not friends anymore. Family members are fighting with each other now. I mean, it's crazy. But there was a time, it's not just about, I, personally, I think both parties have to work yeah. on fixing their house because the foundation has cracks in it and both parties. So, but, but, but there was a time when both parties could come together at some time and, and just talk it out. And now it's, 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 it's very hard now. It's walled off. I, I remember when I used to go over to the White House after Hurricane Katrina, and I would sit down with George Bush and say, look, I didn't vote for you. And I don't want nothing to do with you, but I need help. We need, we need to rebuild the schools, rebuild the hospitals. And George Bush, to his credit, George W. Bush, he listened to me. And when I go home now and I see the VA hospital, the level one trauma center, when the schools are back open, we've got a levy that can hold at least a category three, maybe four. I think about the fact that I could cross that aisle and work on the other side while maintaining my Democratic credentials. There's nothing wrong with political parties and partisanship, but we have taken partisanship to a level now where it is destructive to our country. Hyperpartisanship shit has no place in our democracy, where we just draw lines, artificial lines at that, and don't work on the other, with the other side when you have this much agreement. I can go chapter and verse on days after days when Eleanor Holmes started with no vote 
would get more things done for the District of Columbia than people would have voted. And I'll say this, while the government has been shut down, we, District of Columbia taxpayers, we've been picking up the trash uh, on the mall. We've been doing the snow, providing more police services. Police services at the White House. And the best one is that we have kept their water on. Hello. <laughs> All right. If that doesn't give us statehood, what the hell would should give us statehood? No, this partisanship, gerrymander, the gerrymander of our political system needs to be outlawed. That's why I support what Eric Holder is doing. I don't know if he's going to be a candidate. But Eric Holder is addressing this dysfunction in our system. And I can also talk about the influence of money in politics. I can go chapter and verse. We'll talk later. But I'm a Democrat girlfriend. Okay. All right. Now, the polarization, is there something wrong with Congress? Uh, or is it by design? It's gerrymandering. I mean, it's simple. We create districts. I mean, we can we can represent the same city, but on my side of the track is where all the Democrats. On your side of the track is where all the Republicans. And we might have the same media market, and yet I can't tell my, my reporter that I'm talking to you because that will cause me trouble with my side of the tracks. We got to fix this in American politics. We don't need these supermajority districts where we are, are compacted with Democrats and or Republicans, and yet... We're afraid of a primary, and we don't get nothing done. It's just stupid. All right, Wes, white fragility. Sure. So, and so, really quickly on the on the construction of Congress. I mean, there's a conversation happening now, and I think it's an it's a fascinating conversation about whether or not the current structure of our legislature serves our democracy, okay. right? Whether it makes sense for the state of Wyoming to have two votes on Brett Kavanaugh when the District of Columbia has no votes but a hundred thousand more people, right? Much less the much less Puerto Rico with millions more people. Um, and so there is a conversation. So again, I do think there is a big seismic conversation happening about a representative democracy right now and and how this works and what it looks like and what it should look like because we operate in a system currently doesn't mean we always have to operate within that system right the system can change and um, and I think sometimes in our politics we're biased towards what's happening in the moment we are in um, and the way the rules work currently um, but very often change happens by changing the rules the in terms of white fragility, and it's, it gets to the conversation we were having earlier about reparations and exploration and about the conversations we like to have about race, I think one of the chief, I think two of the chief difficulties we have in this conversation are, one, we don't share shared vocabulary around these issues, but two, that we don't have a shared understanding of our own history, right? We've had a debate about Confederate monuments now going on for years, and many of our fellow citizens don't have a genuine factual grasp of what the Civil War was about. So how so how are we going to debate Starting whether or not General Kelly right right how right. are we going to debate whether or not there should be a statue of Robert E Lee when we can't agree on what on the virtues or or villainous nature of Robert E Lee right um, that without that shared set of facts and that shared historical understanding, it's impossible for us to have these conversations, right? Um, how are we going to have a conversation about things like uh, racial inequity in our current moment if we don't have a shared understanding of racial inequity in our historical moment? How can we have a debate about whether or not there should be reparation for housing redlining when most of our fellow Americans don't understand what that is? Um, and so I think that there is a, a, a massive educational component that has to happen um, because there is an ignorance among us broadly about our own history. And that ignorance is what allows us uh, to con continue having these types of disagreements. It's, it's remarkable in the space that I work in and have worked in for, and have been working in 
how I would hear from readers um, and and very often white readers, subscribers to the Washington Post, and they would they would it would be some of my regulars. So they would be mad at me about every single police shooting. Well, why are you saying this guy didn't deserve it? Did, didn't, don't you see this or don't you know about that? And without a doubt, on shooting five or shooting six, they would go, "Well, you were wrong about every single one, but that guy, I saw the video. They shouldn't have killed him." And all of a sudden, this reader would go, "Well, Michael Brown deserved it, and Eric Gardner deserved it, but that Tamir Rice video." Or that Walter Scott video, right? And that there was this sudden moment. We saw this even last year when we, all of a sudden there was the upspring of these videos of black people living life, minding their business, and then white people like, calling the police on them. And, and you would hear from readers who would go, wait, those guys were just sitting in the Starbucks. Why did someone... Hello. Right? But... but it, it's it, and I'm sitting here at my desk like, oh, you mean to tell me that white people did a racist thing and called them... You know, but... But there's a genuine, and I don't mean this like derogatorily, there's a genuine ignorance of our fellow Americans' experience very often, and that what we've had of these moments where Americans can now see with their own eyes the experiences of other Americans. And but that even when they see room. sometimes, they just act like something is not right. It's like, mm -hmm. no, it wasn't that way. Mm -hmm. And they see it, and it's in an undoctored tape. Of course. Well, and that's the, and it speaks to why, you know, I, I, I would get this question all the time when I would do book talks and they'd go, and people would go, why did the police start killing black people all of a sudden in 2014? <laughs> like, you're like, what, like, why did all these police shootings start happening? And I would look at people like, what are you, what are you talking about? You know, but, but, it, but it was this, but it was this sense of, right, that black, be, be, but because of the devaluation of, of black life. Mm -hmm. There's a devaluation of black story and black narrative. The yes. black Americans have been speaking our own experiences since we arrived here 400 years ago. And, and it's been happening since we got right. off those ships with, mm -hmm. with the sheriffs that were coming policing mm -hmm. us when we were in chains and bondage. It's happened for, started 400 years ago to today. Mm -hmm. You just see it with our smartphones. Thank you, Steve Jobs. You just see it. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and now... And now, again, Americans are forced to acknowledge and see experiences they would never have to f be seen otherwise. I mean, there's it's analogous in some ways to the Me Too movement we've talked about, where you have all these men who are like, wait, can you believe it? Like, every woman I know has been sexually harassed or assaulted? And every woman is like, yes, yes, we believe it, right? And, I mean, it speaks to how often we are so ill-equipped to imagine that the world is different for other people than it is for us, um, and therefore um, to look out and care for and much less make policy to treat other people. And so I think that's something that in this moment, um, you know, and it speaks to, to loop all the questions together. It speaks to one of the challenges of the Democratic Party as well. Uh, the reality in our two-party system is that you have one party that is remarkably diverse and another party that is not. And again, I don't mean that derogatorily towards the Republicans. The reality is the Republicans are, at this point, an ethnically white party. And the Democratic Party is remarkably ethnically diverse. Well, a diverse, complicated family is going to be a much more difficult family, right? Um, because there are warring and competing interests. There are warring and competing cultures that at times understand each other or have difficulty communicating with each other and that is one of the challenges now of a party that is a multicultural multi-ethnic party and a geographically diverse party in a way that the Republican Party is not is how do you govern such a big and how do you inspire so many different types of people um, and I think that's going to be I'm really fascinated with this never-ending list of candidates who, will, who who are entering there have probably been two people announced since we've been on the stage tonight right but but the but I'm fascinated to see who who is able to successfully mobilize different sets of this coalition um, because that's going to be one of the keys to winning winning the uh, the primary much less potentially becoming a uh, successful presidential candidate. Wow. 
we answered all of those questions from everyone. I want to thank you all. I mean, this is this tonight, tonight. I don't know what it tonight is something different to me. Tonight was something different to me. I'm feeling it's 90 years. Dr. King would be 90 years old if he had lived today. But what did you say? 50 years ago, we're 51 years ago, 51 years away from his assassination. But you said 50 years ago, African-Americans just began being franchised. Yeah, fully, fully franchised. Fully we, we've franchised. been real American Homo. citizens yeah. for 50 years. That's ridiculous. Right? That's ridiculous. As we celebrate Dr. King's legacy life, he said, make the comfortable uncomfortable. Tonight's conversation was civil. We shed light on dark spaces. I challenge you and all of you to go out and think about what we talked about. Do something. Service. We have brothers and sisters out there who are not getting paychecks. The idea of food pantries, supporting food pantries. I just read something on Twitter while we were here that um, Pastor Jamal Bryant, who's down in Atlanta at New Birth, he just gave each member $300 who is affected by the shutdown. Yeah, that's, that's something. Service. We're looking for first-class citizenship in this nation, what Dr. King was hoping for, for all America, today on his 90th birthday. With that, I thank you for your attention, your participation, and your interest in what affects America today. Race, politics, and all of the above that we talked about. I want to thank my friend, Donna Brazil, the co-author with her best friends for Colored Girls Who Considered Politics. Give her a big round of applause. Thank you, Donna. I want to thank Wes Lowry, our Pulitzer Prize winner here. They can't kill us all. And to Jason Riley, who made it and had to fly out. That was amazing. I thank Amen. him. Yes. False Black Power. And I'm April Ryan for our seventh installment with Politics and Prose with the Race in America series. My latest book is Under Fire, reporting on the front lines of the Trump White House. If you don't believe it, you can see it every day. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much. We so appreciate you. Look for the next installment. And get your book signed and come down front. We're going to change this whole space out. Donna's going to sign. Wes is going to sign. And I'm going to sign. And we also have some pre-signed books from Jason Raleigh. Thank you so much. Thank you Once all. again, thank you. you. Thank you for coming. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.